Welcome to Experts Only Podcast, sponsored by Clean Capital. You can learn more at cleancapital.com. I'm your host, John Powers. Each week, we explore the intersection of energy, innovation, and finance with leaders across the industry. Thank you so much for joining us. Welcome back to Experts Only. I'm your host, John Powers. So I want to step out of a normal episode today and really help all of us understand what's going on in terms of cybersecurity and the security threats we're seeing in uh, the energy space. And we're all very familiar with what happened to the uh, Clendo Pipeline uh, earlier this year. And we're going to talk to a cybersecurity expert, uh, Richard Hummel, who is, uh, a threat, uh, is involved in threat research at Arbor Networks, uh, part of NetScout. And uh, he's got a, a really diverse background in the cyberspace. We're going to talk not just what's happening in utilities, but what's happening in the marketplace overall in terms of uh, cyber attacks and how then you can, as a company or a leader, can help protect your organization moving forward. This is uh, a, a conversation that probably will scare you a little bit. It definitely scared me, but it help also help drive many of us to action to do the prevention that we need to be doing. Because as we talk about, it's not just the solutions when you've got a ransomware or a uh, DDoS attacks we'll talk about, but it's about doing the work ahead of time to make sure you're protected uh, and can prevent those from happening. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Richard, thanks for joining me in Experts Only. Yeah, thank you for having me, John. Appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. I want to dive into a variety of uh, topics here, but really want to first talk about your experience and what led you to get interested in cybersecurity uh, and you know, such an emerging, such a critical emerging market we're seeing today. You know, it was it was never really a focus of mine. Uh, truth be told, I went to school to become a lawyer. Hmm. Uh, and so I did uh, pre-law, I did some criminal justice. And at the time, I was enjoying it. And I just got this idea like, you know, why don't I just join the army and I'll go for paralegal? I was like, okay, this is like a free ride. Get my education paid for, I'll be a lawyer. It turns out that I had signed paperwork. I was in the MIPS office ready to ship out. And they said, you can't do paralegal. And I said, well, why not? And it turned out because I was homeschooled, it was flagging the system. They wouldn't let me do it. Oh, wow. So I was like, all right, give me the next job that requires the most intensive training um, that you have. And that was Signals Intel. And so I joined the military as a Signals Intel analyst. And when I first got into my unit, they said, you're actually going to do cyber. And so they sent me to some beta course to do uh, cyber training. This was before the army actually had a cyber branch because, you know, the air force and Marines right. and already had theirs. Right. Um, and so me and one other guy did this and we were two of the first four deployed uh, soldiers that actually had cyber training. Amazing. And that was it. That's what kind of kicked me off. And, and ever since then, I've just really, really enjoyed it. So I've gone from doing, you know, traditional cyber stuff, tracking, um, you know, terrorists and regional adversaries to reverse engineering malware, um, tracking cyber crime operators that do ransomware and point of sale malware. Um, and now here I am at Netscout doing uh, DDoS cyber intel. Excellent. So I want to step back and we'll talk about Netscout in a second. But just for the the audience, you know, we're really going to step back and look at the issues of the the attacks we're seeing in the utility space. Everyone's sort of familiar with the Colonial Pipeline attack of recent. Um, but before we do that, I you know like to sort of get a get a uh, framework or uh, maybe a if you can paint a picture for the audience of like what is the current dynamic in cybersecurity? Like why are we seeing you know, I think more publicly, we're really beginning to see attacks like we've never seen before. But it's not like it's just starting, right? This has been on the move for, for years. 
Yeah, exactly. And the thing is, is EDOS and ransomware, two of the things that we're going to talk about here, have been around since really the advent of the internet. Uh, DDoS attack mm-hmm. basically been around since DARPA invented the internet way back. A ransomware has been around since 1989, believe it or not. And so we've seen this phenomena for a long time. And there's been certain points or inflection periods over time where we see a surge of this activity. Um, just thinking through what you maybe have seen in media, you can go back to Game Over Zeus and CryptoLocker when the uh, current kind of iteration of ransomware first hit the scene. Everybody is like, wow, CryptoLocker, these guys are making millions of dollars. Then you have CryptoWall and they, they had 30, 40 million dollars over the course of their lifespan and and everybody recognizes these kind of names right and then same thing with ddos you have the mirai botnet that happened in 2016 and everybody knows about mirai and and the ddos attacks against dying and the reality is is i think what happens is these attacks are getting bigger uh they're getting more sophisticated there's more adversaries getting involved and what what other adversaries do is they monitor the attack trends or the life cycles or what's happening. And they actually see that, man, these guys are succeeding. I can make a quick payday. And so now you have more adversaries getting involved in this. And then you also have the ease of access. So a lot of these operators over recent years have changed things to actually function and operate just like a business would. So these ransomware guys offer this ransomware as a service. DDoS for higher services with booters and stressors allow anyone hey, stop for a second when you were saying that so you're yeah. saying there's there's a platform that's sort of white labeling ransomware that it's a someone is taking ecosystem. Right? it's a whole ecosystem so i wouldn't necessarily consider it white labeling but what they do is they they outsource things right and so you have maybe a malware author they, they actually code the ransomware they don't actually deploy it they're not the ones actually infecting victims they don't manage the infrastructure they basically code this malware and say you can pay us to become an affiliate of our ransomware as a service. And so they will pay into this. And then it's the operator's responsibility to distribute that ransomware and actually infect people. And so you might have these, you might go back a, a couple of years that the Drydex takedowns, the TrickBot takedowns, they take them down and they come back. Why do they come back? Because the actual authors are not the ones being taken down. They're taking down operators that are running right. certain branches of this code. And so the ease of access has just changed the dynamic. You can go for $10 in Bitcoin and launch a fairly significant size DDoS attack at any one of your choosing. And so the ease of access has really changed this. And then until cryptocurrency, now you have an easy method of paying for these things. Right. And naturally, you're just going to have more and more of this. And the more success you see in the media, the more adversaries want to get involved and make paid So I do want to get into the energy and utility side of this for a second, but let's just step out of that and look at the broader uh market of attacks that we're seeing, you know, can you give folks a sense of scale of like, what are we seeing sort of looking at the U.S.? Let's look at the U.S. economy. Like, what are we seeing um, in terms of scale before we sort of dive into the utility side? So one interesting thing when we're looking at, uh, let's just look at DDoS first. So when you look at DDoS, um, it's not necessarily... Can you explain what DDoS is, by the way? Yeah, so don't know. DDoS, distributed denial of service. Basically, there's a really common parallel between ransomware and DDoS. Both of them affect availability. The goal here is to knock a service, a platform, something offline that you can't use. If you encrypt files with ransomware, you can't use your files. And most right. likely, you can't use your computer. If you successfully launch a DDoS attack, you're, you're doing network exha- exhaustion and knocking that service offline. 
Um, and so they both can have similar effects in terms of availability. The difference with DDoS is that you're actually launching the, the adversary uh, has a network of devices, either a botnet, or they're using legitimate devices and reflecting traffic off of them to a target of their choosing, in which case it will, it will saturate a network um, sufficient to tip it over. That's their goal. Um, and so that's DDoS in a nutshell. Yeah. And, and, and the thing is, is both ransomware and DDoS, uh, you might hear about these highly targeted incidents. So you mentioned the colonial pipeline. But the reality is, is most of these adversaries are indiscriminate about who they go after. Right. Uh, they just attack anyone. In fact, ransomware... And they're going after school districts, they're going after hospitals, they're going after... Local. Yeah, the thing is, is like more of these sophisticated ransomware operations will go after local businesses, or they'll go after big enterprises. But the vast majority of ransomware out there, they don't care who they target. It's opportunistic. If right. they get a list of email addresses, they're going to send a spam message to you. And the way I, I explained this earlier with the business model is that you have a third party that is actually trying to send out the spam messages. So you might have an our author, you have an operator that says, I want to run this. And then they will consult with the third party that says, okay, now I need a spam campaign that's going to send out this malware. And so they'll send it out and they've gotten really, really good about this. And so the spam messages you get are often indistinguishable from legitimate messages. Right. Um, and so they're really good about infecting. Um, and then you have this whole ecosystem there. And so they will target whomever they can. I, I always go back to this term that I try to coin, and I don't know that if it's taken root anywhere, but <laughs> opportunistic targeting. Because they are targeting specific people. I like it. I'm going to start using that. I like hey, it. you know what? And you can, so take, take, for example, breaches. Um, a while ago, we had the OPM breach. Yep. I guess about three or four years ago now. You have your email addresses. You have your names, you have your addresses, you have your social security numbers, all of that compromise and all of that, that data correlated to an individual person. Yeah, and for people who don't know, that basically was the entire federal government. Essentially. A yeah. Any personnel who worked, and I was in there at the time, but was hit by that. So. Yep, my, mine was leaked in OPM stuff as well. So yeah. um, so you take that, and you have an adversary like these third-party uh, spam distributors, and now they have an entire corpus of data where they can craft socially engineered emails specific to those users now, they don't care which of those users they're going after if it's crimeware. They just, they want to hit them all. Yeah. So if, if I can craft an email that looks like you should pay attention because, man, your, your stuff just got leaked in OPM, your social security number's at risk, I can craft a very good email to try to get you to click on something. And so that would be the opportunistic opportunist mm. targeting that I was talking about. So it's not necessarily spear phishing where they're going after a very specific organization for a specific person, purpose. It's like they're going after the whole thing because it's available to them. Right. Yeah. Uh, and so that's kind of the, the phenomenon with the whole ransomware scene. It's really doesn't matter who you are. doesn't matter where you sit. Um, I will say there's an exception to this. Uh, a lot of the really famous ransomware, uh, Crypto Locker, Crypto Wall, Tesla Crypt, Torrent Locker, um, and some of these other ones, uh, when you actually get into reverse engineering, this because I, I did some reversing for a while, uh, a lot of those ransomware were designed to not encrypt files if your computer had Russian language settings or was in Russian IP space. Oh, interesting, yeah. And so, because those operators are believed to have been from Russia. Yeah. So as long as they didn't target Russian citizens, then they, were they could do whatever they wanted, right? Yeah. Um, and so in, in some cases, you would see that phenomenon where Russia wouldn't have as much activity. But that said, ransomware comes from everywhere, from every country. Um, and so that will target anywhere. Um, DDoS, we see a lot of the same phenomena. In fact, the vast bulk of DDoS attacks are actually against consumers like you and me. And specifically, 
gamers. Hmm. But what most people probably don't know is that 80% roughly of DDoS attacks, it can all be traced back to gaming. Because you have these disgruntled users that are facing their opponents and maybe they're having a voice communication chat or whatever it might be. And man, they just killed them for the 10th time. And I've had it with you and I want to DDoS you. I'm going to knock you offline so I can beat you. Oh, wow. uh, and so it's, it's relatively easy to find IP addresses for your opponent, especially when you're communicating to them because a lot of these these VoIP communication protocols will reveal IP addresses for who you're speaking to. Um, and so I'm going to find the IP address. I'm going to knock you offline. Um, and the same is true for like the underground esports because there's a lot of money riding on this. Right. Um, tens, of, tens of millions of dollars, if not hundreds of millions. And so you have a lot of these attacks. I mean, if you're in a match and you're knocked offline for even three seconds, it's enough to tilt that match in favor of somebody. Right. So gamers themselves might not be involved in those esports. It could be other people that are just gambling on them, right? And they just staked somebody, and now the other person has to has to go down. Um, and so yeah, so I, I would say that for both ransomware and DDoS, monetary gain is the predominant focus of both of these. That's not to say you can't have demonstrations, you can't have right. activism. There could be some nation state involved, but monetary gain is the predominant focus. And so if they're trying to get a payday. It doesn't matter what country it's from. It doesn't matter what industry you're part of. I'm going to go after where I think the money is. Um, and that's what we see with both DDoS and ransomware. Uh, in a second, I'm going, to, I'm going to have you sort of walk us through the Colonial Pipeline attacks. It's just from the cyber side. I think people understand on the energy front, obviously, the influence there. But before we do that, uh, just one more basic question. You know, we're seeing the emergence of a lot of these attacks out of Russia, you know, probably out, out of China and other areas like is that because they have had the infrastructure investment, whether it be in their military or other places, to now build up entire teams that know how to do this? Like, what what's driving that out of those locations? So everything that I've said so far is non-nation state sponsored. Now, that's not to say that you know governments couldn't be backing some of this activity. Um, I'm not really in a position to say that because I haven't yeah. done the attribution side in a long time. Um, but I mean, there's any number of reasons, but one could be a simple fact that there's no repercussions if they do this to non-resident um, you know, folks. Right. So you can have crime syndicates that are just like breaking in the money and there, there's literally no repercussions. There's no extradition. I mean, sure, they can be indicted, but you know, if they, all, if they stay in Russia, then so, so what? Yeah, who's going to find them, right? And so that's part of the problem. And really, if we wanted to solve this problem, we have to have cross- country expedition plans. We have to be able to have law enforcement and Interpol and Russian you know, law enforcement help us here. And, and I just don't see that happening in the future. Yeah, I don't disagree. And I think people have a misconception that you see these big announcements in, uh, around these attacks. That's just the tip of the iceberg, right? That's, the tip. that's, that's yeah. just what DHS and NSA and others want you to even know about because there's so much happening <laughs> underneath that doesn't get talked about. Yeah, and the thing is, is like a lot of these media events are the the, the minuscule portion of this attack. So you you hear about Colonial Pipeline, you hear about um, there, there's a recent uh, attacks on the was it Luma Energy? Um, there's various other things where you see like these big media events, but those are like for DDoS attacks. That's like one in ten million, right? And so right. we're talking about a very very tiny portion of all of the ransomware and DDoS attacks that ever make their way public. But there's so much more happening on the backside. In fact, we surveyed enterprises and internet service providers uh, last year. And the number one threat that they faced was ransomware. And the number two threat was DDoS. And specifically DDoS extortion. 
And those right. are two of the primary concerns that they had going into them. Um, and so just when you say you, you say we, you're talking about NetScout. NetScout, yes. Can you talk for a second for folks that aren't aware of NetScout, what you guys do? Um, the shortest way to say this is that NetScout is guardians of the connected world. Um, and the, the whole meaning behind that is that we are trying to make sure that every single person that is a customer of ours stays connected to the rest of the world. Right. Because we understand that that is the lifeblood for most of these organizations. So a lot of the internet service providers of the world are customer parts. And they don't survive if they don't maintain internet connectivity. And they don't maintain those pipelines to the consumers and all of the enterprises, purchasing services. And so we absolutely value ourselves as being those guardians and trying to maintain that always on service assurance. Um, and so that's essentially what NetScout does. We provide uh, visibility. We provide mitigation and protection in the DDoS space and understanding what traffic, internet traffic is flowing across customer networks. So you can make informed decisions about what to do with that. And so that's essentially where NetScale comes in uh, to help. So you mentioned internet providers, like who else would be sort of a, do you work with smaller firms or mostly larger sort of fully integrated like geopolitical firms? So we work with any size customer. Um, and the thing is, is obviously our products I won't say, I'm not going to do a product pitch here, but I won't say that they're cheap. Um, I will right. say that you have different tiers though. And just like we have different tiers is other peers in the industry have tiers. You have on-prem stuff. If you have your own security team, you might have uh, your own scrubbing center. And scrubbing equipment is very expensive. If you're an enterprise, maybe you just need a device that's sitting at your perimeter to maybe make uh, decisions about inbound outbound traffic. Um, so we have that size. You also might say, well, I don't, I can't actually put any equipment on premises. What do I do now? Well, now you have cloud solutions. So Arbor Cloud is one uh, that we have. And so now you can have Arbor Cloud handle things. And so you might have some intelligent decision-making happen. Like if we get DDoS attack, let's route traffic through Arbor Cloud and they'll do the scrubbing and then send the, the clean traffic back to us. And so there's really kind of all sizes for all different types of organizations. Um, and, and there's obviously other solutions. If I just need a website, monitor there's there's other right. in the industry that just do like single website type things um and so really there is a right size for anyone okay. so let's dive into the the energy space um sure. obviously going back to being connected to you know there's few industries uh like energy that's as connected to all of us in our homes and our businesses so why why are utilities under attack and then i do want to walk if you can walk me through you know what we know at this point publicly of like not the repercussions of the colonial attack, but like how it happened. Like what were the weak points that they took advantage of and how did this begin to transpire over the last, I guess it was a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. So I think I, the first question you posed, the why, uh, why energy is hit. Um, I think I've already covered that a little bit. And like I said, with DDoS and with ransomware, monetary gain is the predominant focus. Right. And what better way to hit than in energy, which is the lifeblood of what keeps our lights on, right? If, if I can successfully compromise a company that's dealing with energy servicing the entire eastern seaboard or the western, whatever it might be, right? I mean, you're talking about... So let me, let me flip that question. Is a majority yeah. of the attacks we're seeing today based on monetary gain by a criminal syndicate versus a national security risk that, you know, the Russians now have their fingertips on our utility uh, devices or both? That is a loaded question. Yeah. Uh, and I will say that there's definite possibility for it to be both. Yeah. However, most of what we deal with and what we see is, is very much on the crime side um, where they're looking for a payday. Now, yeah. I can't speak with authority on 
is that crime syndicate also sponsored by a government? It's quite possible. We've seen attacks from North Korea before, for instance, where they've leveraged DDoS attacks to take down like cryptocurrency exchanges. Um, and so there, there definitely is some form of these ransomware and DDoS attacks that are absolutely nation state sponsored. Um, but I couldn't tell you which ones are. Um, so for the most part, we tend to look at the, the crime motivation, which is the monetary gain. Interesting. Yeah. And, and, and for the listeners, I mean, the Department of Homeland Security under President Trump actually put out a report, I think probably two years ago now, that you know basically outlined that the Russians have their fingerprints on our, our energy uh, utilities as of now, whether it be the criminal side or, you know, I think they were talking about the nation state side. And when they do that, they're doing that because they're sending a signal <laughs> saying, we know you've, you've, you've got this. So, okay. So, so for folks that aren't, aren't if you, unless you did not read the news, <laughs> I think most people know what happened to the colonial pipeline, but, uh, you know, at, at a high level, this is providing, uh, uh, fuel up and down the Eastern seaboard. It shut down for days, costs uh, uh, billions in, in, from an economic perspective, uh, caused folks in places like North Carolina to be in line for, uh, for almost full days to get gas uh, in their vehicles. How did this happen? How was Colonial targeted? Not, maybe not targeted, maybe if it was an economic perspective, but like, how did they actually execute on this on the cyber side? Yeah, so, so first off, I want to just kind of touch on one aspect of this that maybe is obvious, but... Uh, it helps to kind of draw a parallel here is we believe that the dark side crew, the, the guys that were responsible for launching this ransomware are crime, right? It's yeah. a crime syndicate. They're looking for, they're looking for a payout. But for folks that don't know, dark side's a Russian crime syndicate that you yes. mentioned. Well, a little exactly. history on that. Can you give just a quick history on that team? Um, so I, I haven't followed dark side too closely, but um, I've been following them more recently, obviously because they're ransomware. But these guys very specifically go after targeted organizations. They're looking for medium-sized organizations, uh, local governments, people that that aren't necessarily super high profile. Um, they have some sort of weird mission statement that they don't want to cause any socio-political disruptions. Uh, they clearly failed at that. With the yeah. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, they've gone... So no one checked their mission statement on that attack. Yeah, they've gone relatively, <laughs> relatively silent after that because it brought so much attention to them. But oh, that's wow. their mission statement. They wanted to go after people that weren't going to have a huge impact on society um, in order to elicit payment. They, they also, I, I read some, um, I don't know if it was a blog or somebody commenting on kind of their mission statement, but these guys were launching attacks and, and showing holes in people's organization while soliciting payment. And I mean, come on, they're not like white hat guys. These are bright guys doing bad things. They need right. Um, so anyway, there's, there's that whole aspect, but, What's even more important here is look at the success that they have. So even if it was another crime group that was looking at men, all they had to do was go after this and they, they did it this way. But more so, look at nation states. What happened to our country because they managed to compromise this organization? And I'll get into what I understand of the, the how that they did this. Um, but I mean, nation states looking at this, they, they shut down the entire Eastern uh, seaboard, oh, absolutely, yeah. shipping gas and oil by one simple ransomware attack. And so, yeah, nations that are absolutely going to pay attention to that and be like, man, this is this is going to go in my toolkit, in my attack playbook, if I ever want to take out the energy grid, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so now the how, my understanding is that they actually accessed via age-old means of getting into systems. Hmm. My understanding is that there was a latent user account that was in their third-party vendor. Um, so, so 
let me actually lay out the attack. What actually happened? Yeah, the pipeline didn't actually get attacked. So it was actually there a vendor of theirs that they used to manage the billing for the oil where they're shipping. And right. so what happened is that they couldn't tell how much oil they were shipping to one of their consumers. Um, and so instead of just shipping oil continuously, they shut it, the whole pipeline down until they could figure out how much to bill somebody. And so that resulted in this domino effect of this huge loss. But they anticipated that the loss from that was less than just continuing to ship this millions of gallons of oil without charging anybody. Wow. Um, and so the Colonial Pipeline itself didn't actually get hit. It was actually this third-party vendor. And my oh, understanding is that they, they got in because there was an account there that wasn't being used any, anymore from a past employee um, that had credentials that were compromised. And so they used uh, a method that has been employed for probably over a decade, if not more at this point, of brute forcing or purchasing compromised credentials somewhere in the underground and using those to log into an account and then gain access. And we, that is still one of the predominant ways that adversaries get in. It's just this simple brute forcing using known exploits that should have been patched many, many years ago and using social engineering tactics by email to get people to click or download something. And so in spite so of simpl- all- Simplify that for me. So some previous employee had you know, their password and login for whatever system, invoicing system, that had been basically taken, uh, someone had gotten hold of it in various ways. That's my understanding. And, and yeah. most of my my understanding of this comes from reading other people's research. Sure, involved. no, I understand. Like, like Bleeping Computer has good ones, ZDNet, Ars Technica. They have some really good technical deep dives into some of these things. And then they use that entry point to put in the ransomware. Yes. So if, if they're able to get access to a system, in theory, that system should not be connected to critical systems that can literally blow up an entire organization, yeah. right? Um, and so there were there was some other security concerns that should have been addressed here, not just some latent account, whatever. Right. Not only was it a latent account, but if they managed to deploy ransomware that impacted their entire like core uh, uh, invoicing system, then that account clearly should not have been provisioned as such. And even more so, if that person was no longer working there, uh, it should very clearly have been removed from permissions groups. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so there was definitely some procedure fails, from what I can tell, uh, that happened. That's fascinating. I mean, for, for our audience who, you know, consists of leaders in, in the industry and folks sort of working out across all spectrums, thinking about that, you know, it wasn't colonial like it hit, right? It was their invoicing vendor right. that caused this multi-billion dollars. And then once they had that ransomware in place, was it $4 million? Or they asked for $4 million in cryptocurrency? I think $4 million. Now, for the size of organization, they normally would have asked for a lot more. Yeah. The social impact that they had, they decreased the cost of the... Oh a lot um and so i always thought it was like an austin powers moment where he's like four million dollars <laughs> i'm like does he know what that means this is in rubles <laughs> so, yeah you know you would think that um but you know there's there's actually these boutique uh insurance companies out there um i i'm not remembering the name of any at the top of my head but there are actually companies out there that specialize in negotiating ransomware payments with the bad guys Right, and these are legitimate companies, mind you. So, yeah. if if you as an organization decide I'm going to pay for this, you can consult with one of these companies to actually interface with you on your behalf with the bad guys to be able to get your your files back, essentially. Yeah. Um. And so, I don't know if one of those were employed in this circumstance. Um. It's quite possible. Um. But again, I mean, in my opinion, they should not have paid. Uh, I am of the stance that never ever is it okay to pay ransomware. 
One, because it enables the adversaries. It makes you complicit in an actual crime that's happening. And three, there's no guarantee that the adversaries aren't going to come back or even decrypt your files. Yeah, I was going to ask you that question. So, I mean, one-on-one for those of us that aren't in the industry, if you pay, how do you know they're even going to take the ransom? You <laughs> yeah. You are operating on complete and total faith. Right. Um, let's go trying back to, steal to Yeah, look, uh, you probably remember WannaCry, right? Yeah. Way back when. So WannaCry had this issue where there wasn't actual unique IDs per infection. And the way you had to contact the adversary, they couldn't tell which device you had or which encryption keys were being used. And so often there was actually no way you could make a payment, but you would have no recourse to actually recover your files because the adversary couldn't even send you the right decryption key. And I've, right. seen, I've seen many, many ransomware families like that, where there's actually no way for them to send you the proper decryption key, or they're not tracking individual users on a pay-by-pay perspective. And so again, it's just, it's one of those things that's like, just stay away from that as much as possible. Yeah. And so let's play this out for a second. If you're, if you're talking, you're advising the CEO of, uh, we'll use Colonial, but let's take it to energy company X who gets hit with a ransomware. First of all, what should they do? What should their actions be? You know, how do they even get this? Because most of, I imagine, most have some type of security relationship, but many don't, especially smaller companies. There's just yeah. something that you don't. So how so, do you, what do you advise people? Yeah, so maybe I can take it one step removed from that first. Yeah. Um, so what should you do now? Yes. And I deal with ransomware today, but what should you do now? And that is practice good network ID. I mean, with the, with the case of Colonial Pipeline, that if, if they had cleaned up that account that wasn't being used anymore, or they had simply just uh, got rid of the ability to brute force usernames and passwords, or they had properly isolated and segmented their network to not affect the rest of it, there's any number of things they could have done to prevent that. And so to me, preparation is, is the single most important aspect of both ransomware and DDoS. If, if you're prepared to handle some of these things, if you're patching your systems, if you're isolating your networks, if you're educating your users about what spam looks like or what things to click on and what things not to click on, um, if you are practicing the good hygiene of, of deleting accounts that are being used anymore, getting rid of default usernames and credentials, implementing two-factor authentication, like all of these things are just common things that, that we in the security industry have been preaching for many, many, many years. And if we just follow these and we stay up to date with these, we're going to be prepared to handle a lot of these threats. And I would say greater than 80% of these threats can be handled by taking care of the things we've been talking about for many, many years. Yeah. And DDoS especially is really key here because so we, we've been tracking this uh, DDoS extortion campaign. Uh, there's two of them actually running right now. One is Lazarus by Armada. The other one is Fancy Lazarus. And these guys, what they'll do is they'll launch a DDoS attack in a demonstration. And then they'll send an extortion demand that says, hey, we're going to continue to launch these attacks if you don't pay us Bitcoin. And what we have seen in, in every single customer that, that I have helped with, that my colleagues have helped with, even non-customers that have reached back to us for assistance, if they had some form of DDoS mitigation and protection services in place, almost to a letter, not a single one of them experiencing any negative downtime or business impact because they were prepared to handle these attacks and those attacks were relatively rudimentary. They were, you know, you're one of the mill attacks. There were things we haven't seen before. And the same is true in ransomware, brute forcing, exploitation of known credentials, things like eternal blue and eternal romance that are exploits that operate on SMB. There's, there's any number of these things that have just been around for so, so long that people aren't patching. They're not aware right. of 
And so as prevention, getting in the same way. Yeah. So, so I imagine most of the folks out there aren't doing the prevention or maybe starting to do the prevention. So for those that aren't, and this happens, like do, who do they, most of the folks who won't even know who to pick up the phone and call, like what's the next, what, first of all, you're probably in trouble at that point, right? You've yeah. had the heart attack, you're in the hospital, you probably shouldn't eat the 15 Big, big max, right? right. <laughs> so step I mean, one is exercise. But, if I have to say your organization um, and you, you have the ability to actually call somebody for help in this case, my go-to would be FireEye or Mandiant because I actually used to work for FireEye and Mandiant. I know they do a phenomenal job with incident response. Uh, NetScout is not the person you call with when you have a ransomware infection. I'll tell you that right now. Because are you guys the prevention people? We, we are preventing the DDoS attacks. Yeah. Right? And so if if... And here's another thing. It's not if you're going to get DDoS attacked anymore. It's when you're going to get DDoS attacked. And right. you as a consumer might realize, man, as a consumer, I don't, I mean, if I go down for a couple of minutes, that, that's irrelevant. I don't really care. But if your lifeblood consists of maintaining that internet connection, right. then you should consider that it's not if you're going to get attacked, it's when. And there might not even be a direct attack against you as an organization. It could be collateral damage. And in, in the DDoS world, collateral damage happens every single day and all the time. Um, and so you might have, for instance, you might have uh, some gamers out there that are mad at somebody and that their opponent's using a VPN, a, a commercial VPN IP address. Well, what happens if they take down that VPN? Well, anybody else using it is going to get taken offline too. If it right. Goes, right. So collateral damage is a, is a really big thing in the DDoS world. Um, and so absolutely prevention is key. Now that said, if you are under a DDoS attack, we do have a hotline you can call in at NetScout. But don't call us for ransomware if, if you're encrypted because we're, we're not going to be able to help. Call yeah. <laughs> someone like FireEye or Mandiant that can actually do some post-based forensics. Um, yeah. So two different you know, sides of the coin. Now, well, it's important. Response, people, I think most people don't understand that, right? And just that yeah. explanation in its own right is going to go very far in helping people understand what they need to be doing. Exactly. The response is different when you've been hit, right? Because you have two different things you've got to go after. But the prevention aspect, a lot of the overlaps are still there. So adequately adequately being prepared, isolating your networks, making sure that if, if one goes down, the other one stays up, making sure you don't have you know, normal gaps in your security posture, um, things that should be patched are patched. Um, and so there, there's a lot of similarities in terms of the prevention aspects, but there's very different responses in terms of how you deal with it after you get to it. Yeah. And as our world gets more and more interconnected, right, with, between the concept of Internet of Things, you know, every venture capitalist in the world is looking at how to tie in closer to the Internet of Things world. You know, we're seeing some coordination happening now in the new administration, Homeland Security, the White House and others on this. But, you know, if you if there's a trend line in this space, it continues to go up in terms of attacks. <laughs> up into right? the right. Up so, into the right. Yeah, we actually, we talked about that in our last tour report. Um, and up into the right is pretty much what we're seeing across the board, whether it's in terms of the number of attacks or the, the types of new attacks that we're seeing. Just, in fact, in the past, I think the past year, we have seen adversaries uh, significantly use and weaponize upwards of eight new vectors that we've never seen before. Wow. Um, and, and that doesn't change. So like the DDoS for higher services, why would they ever remove a DDoS attack vector? It makes no sense. But if a new one comes out, let's add to it. So now you have this whole smorgasbord of things that we can choose from. Um, and let's just keep increasing it. And so I think um, this is the early preview for you of our next report. But um, over the past six months, we've seen uh, an attack leverage 32 different DDoS attack vectors in a singular attack. Wow. Which is nuts because now you have defenders that have to try to 
to scramble and prevent all of these different things and make sure that their systems have automated ways in place to handle it. Um, and it, it's crazy. So up and to the right is absolutely correct. Well, thanks for scaring us, Richard. I appreciate it. <laughs> you, know, you mentioned the IoT and, and more, and, and here's another scary metric that maybe you didn't know, but if you, if you put a new IoT device online, within five minutes, that IoT device is going to get brute force attempt. Wow. And we've tested this multiple times, multiple Could different... Could be a Nest thermostat or a baby camera or whatever. And it, well, so, I mean, I will, I will caveat that baby cameras for the most part don't reside on your network. Oh, okay. uh, so I don't want to scare people to think that somebody's going <laughs> to lock into your, your baby camera and look at, you know, whatever. Um, but yeah, your, your Nest thermostat, your, you know, Christmas happens, you open all your gifts. And I mean, when this past Christmas, when I opened my gifts, I had at least four devices that I got that were IoT devices and needed internet. Oh yeah. Right. And so I, I could probably count like 50 things just in my office alone that probably can connect to the internet. Um, and so the reality is, is that if I plug that in within five minutes, expect it to get brute force attacked with default credentials and passwords. So, I mean, some of these devices don't even have the ability to log in and change usernames and passwords if they have right. something now. Or if they do, how many consumers know about that? Does your router have a firewall in front of it? Probably not. So Probably your router not. might be, you know, is it being updated regularly? Do you go in and you change your settings? Um, so there's all these things. And then, then factor in COVID, where all the enterprises went to work from home, yeah. and all of our corporate devices went from being behind corporate firewalls, or what we call inside the castle, to your home network. Yeah. Do you have corporate firewalls? Do you have IDS and IPS in front of that? Probably not. Um, and so now you have this whole other aspect of the security posture that you have to worry about. Fascinating. I, I will definitely have you back on to talk more about this. This is Richard fascinating. And I want to thank Drew Pearson uh, and the team for helping to set this up. But I do want to ask one last question. If you can go back to yourself, um, coming out of homeschool, getting ready to go in the army, you could sit down and give yourself one piece of advice. What would it be? You know what? If I had to do it all over again, I would tell myself to do the same thing. That's amazing. It's um, great. Th this this field that I'm in here is awesome, and everybody that has moved into it since I've been part of, whether I've ad advised them to move into it, they enjoy it thoroughly. My brother followed in my footsteps because I told him it was so much fun, and now he's enjoying doing the same kinds of things that I am. And so, if I had to give myself advice, I would say forget the law stuff and go into cyber. Uh, That's awesome. Well, Richard, thanks so much for joining us, and I really appreciate the work you guys are all doing at NetScout and. Uh, trying to keep a lot of us safe out there. And, you know, obviously some clear messages for the audience and we look forward to uh, continuing the conversation for sure. Absolutely, John. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks to our producers, Colin Young uh, and Carly Batten. As always, you can get more episodes at cleancapital.com and we look forward to uh, future conversations. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening in today's conversation. Find more episodes on cleancapital.com, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. We look forward to continuing our conversation on energy, innovation, and finance with you.